On Tuesday of this week, I'm sure you know or heard or saw that a well-known and controversial host of the television show, The View, made a statement about our vice president. Who heard that? Raise your hand if you heard anything about it. Okay. Well, apparently he had, in some forum, stated that he talks to the Lord and the Lord talks to him. And the response of this TV host was that if he's hearing voices, that should be called mental illness. Well, I want you to know that you can put me in that category as well, okay? Just go right ahead. Because I still believe that he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Am I the only one? Is that true for anybody else in the house today? Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to talk about hearing the voice of the Lord today. Let me draw your attention to the story of a battle that took place. 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm starting at verse 2. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. How many? After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked, what happened here? Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? And then they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. And so they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. You see, the Israelites sent men to Shiloh, as we just read, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. And let me tell you, well, what's wrong with that? Well, they were rather superstitiously supposing that its presence, like a good luck charm, would turn the tide. Well, let me be clear. The ark did represent the presence of the Lord in battle, but only when people carried it in faith and by divine leading. Let's go on with verse 5. When all the Israelites saw the ark of the covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud that it made the ground shake. What's going on? The Philistines asked. What's all the shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the ark of the Lord had arrived, well, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We have never had to face anything like this before. The Philistines were assuming that because the the ark had been brought to the camp that God was with the Israelites. Verse 8, so help, who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroy the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. So Philistines fight as never before. If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slaves just as they have been ours. Stand up like men and fight. And so the Philistines fought desperately and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. Now understand, this is the slaughter after the loud shouting and after the Ark of the Covenant had been brought. Here's what the slaughter was. How many men this time? 30,000 Israelite soldiers soldiers died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The Ark of the Lord was then captured by the Philistines. And Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, who were corrupt, by the way, they were killed. Let me just say, it was not a good idea on the part of the Philistines to capture the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, How many know, you don't mess with God. How many know that? 
That did not work out so well for them because God was out to make it clear to them that you don't do that. But they took the ark of God into the temple of Dagon. You can read it in chapter 5. It's rather interesting. And they put the ark alongside the, the idol of Dagon. How many know that's a bad idea? A really bad idea. But when they went the next morning to check on, uh, on it, the idol of Dagon had fallen face down to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. wonder how that happened. <clears throat> so they set the idol back up. The next morning they checked and, and he had fallen again, face down before the ark of the Lord. Only this time his head and his hands were broken off and lying in the doorway. And then I just think this is spectacular. Our creative God did something wonderful. You know what he did at that point? He smote them all with hemorrhoids. That's exactly what happened. Is that in the Bible? Chapter 5. So the lesson is clear. Don't mess with God or you might be in big trouble. Can I get an amen this morning? Some versions say tumors, some versions use it, but let me tell you, it is what it is, okay. This is a bad loss in the Bible. We see the loss initially at 4,000, and then in only just a few verses, that number jumps exponentially from 4,000 to 30,000. And here's what I'm wondering, church, <clears throat> this morning. I'm wondering if you've ever gotten to the point in life where you experience loss, real loss. Something was removed, which... Uh, you may have attributed to the enemy, and then you went to God and you simply said the same thing the uh, Israelite elders said. So, what happened here? What happened? Why? And it certainly is normal for there to be a long list of why questions after you've experienced a bad moment, a bad situation, and a circumstance of loss in your life. Why? God, why? Please allow me to just Say this, and I'm going to ask you to listen very, very carefully to this, particularly this next thing I want to say, because it's an important life, spiritual life lesson, very important. The very next decision you make after experience loss in your life is an extremely important and critical decision. I could take this to all kinds of places, talking about the nexts in your life. And how important they are. There's musical application I could make. There's life application. But this is so very true. And I hope that anyone under the sound of my voice today who's experienced a significant measure of loss, you will listen carefully. Because your next decision, next one, is extremely critical and extremely important. The decision that you make after losing something or someone is important. doesn't matter what the loss is. Loss of a loved one, loss of a job, loss of relationship, loss of money, loss of an investment, loss of trust, loss of a church, loss of a scholarship. After loss, here is what typically happens. Bad decisions are usually right on the heels right after loss because you got the emotion, you got the anger, you could have bitterness that is uh, trying to creep in. There's jealousy, there's hurt, there's devastation, all those things. And since it is likely that your next step, like in our text, can bring you even greater loss from 4,000 to 30,000, it is so very critical that you are listening to the voice of God. How many can say with me this morning, I want to be a good listener? It is so critical that we are listening to the voice of God and what He has to say. Because whether we realize it or not, that loss 
that you've experienced is more than likely going to bring you to a fork in the road. At least this is the way it happens 99 times out of 100. And at, at that path, you'll discover that one, at that fork, you'll discover that one path will lead you to resentment and the other path will lead you to forgiveness and allow you to let it go, whatever it is. Because if you walk with resentment and turn your heart to where you are making people your enemy who are really not your enemy, then you will prohibit the work that God is wanting to do in you and through you in the process of this whole experience. And you will be brought face to face with the opportunity to make a conscious decision to forgive. And particularly when the the hurt and loss come from someone that you love, you will always face that fork in the road. You've got either the path of of resentment or the path of forgiveness. And you come to that point of critical decision, critical decision. And your life, your ministry, your future going forward will be greatly impacted, greatly affected by you making the right decision, choosing the right path after the loss that you have experienced. And in this particular situation, you have to be extremely careful who you listen to in the midst of loss. How many can say, yep, that's sure true? You've got to be very careful who you're listening to. Just because they're saved, just because they go to your church, does not mean their reaction to your situation is what it should be either. Does that hurt your feelings? It's the truth. Because it could be for good reasons. Maybe they've taken up your offense. Have you ever had someone take up your offense and, and they, they got more mad at the person who had, who had harmed you than you were? They were going to go get him and you had to kind of call them off. But you need, you, you need to be sure you're getting wise counsel and it's probably not going to be from the people who are emotionally invested with you. Well, that's where we find Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a very dark time under the leadership of Eli, and Samuel is about to step up as the young prophet. Israel is about to go into battle, but Samuel doesn't have his voice yet. They, they've just suffered the loss of 4,000 men as casualties to the Philistines that usually they were beating. By the way, always this is a little side note here. I'm not going to charge any extra for it. Always remember this in your reading of the Old Testament. When Israel loses a battle, they never lose because of military issues or men. It's always because of spiritual issues. You need to check that out. And so while while they're there, as soon as the great loss comes, then the great question comes. And here it is again from verse verse 3 of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. It says this, after the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp. And the elders of Israel ask, and here's the big question, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Great question. I will say, notice that they are ascribing it to God, saying God was in the midst of this loss. Maybe God was trying to say something to us. But watch this closely. And as as I read this narrative, I'm wondering... At, you know, when I put myself in the situation, I'm reading it and wondering, why, why was there no one standing in the midst of them, screaming out to them, wait, Israel, let God answer you? Why was that not happening? When they were asking the all-important question, 
And I have to admit to you, there are times I have to say, wait, Bethesda, let God tell you. There's my tie. I knew, it was, I knew you should never wear ties in the pulpit. This just proved it just then. Wait, Bethesda, let God tell you. Here's what happened. Why has God defeated us today among the Philistines? And before, they're asking the question, and before they can catch their breath or anything else happens, some Einstein genius steps forward and says, we read it, go get the ark. That's the problem. Go get the ark. And I find myself wanting to step into that scenario and yell at the top of my voice and say, no, stop. Listen to the voice of the Lord. You just ask him a question. Give him a chance to answer. We don't need you imposing the ark, Einstein, at this moment. Okay. Well, we just lost. Get the ark. We just lost. Get the ark. We just lost. As if, and before God has even given an opportunity to answer, they're running to Shiloh to go pick up the ark. They're going to bring it in, and they have no idea that that decision is now going to cost them not 4,000 lives, but how many? 30,000 lives. 30,000 lives just because you didn't pause and listen to God. Can't you almost, almost see the mouth of God starting to say something? And, and, and they're asking, inquiring, why did this and it start to say something? But then somebody interrupts and says, get the ark! And then suddenly the train wreck takes place. Can I just propose a simple idea? And I've already laid the groundwork for who I'm talking to today. I'm talking to people who've experienced loss. And how critical it is how you handle and manage the next decision. Can I just say this? But it goes to all of us. If you talk to God, let him talk back. If you talk to if, if you ask God a question. Let him respond to you. Our problem is that more times than not, we say, God, what should we do here? And before we even let him answer, we're already doing our own thing and crafting our own plan and getting our own agenda. And therefore, if you ask something of God, give him time to answer. And if God is not speaking, then don't move and don't do nothing. I just need every once in a while to know that you're still awake, okay? Let me say it this way. It is the height of manipulation on our part to have God in our life, and we do all the talking and none of the listening. Yes, Miss Behar. Oh, I said her name. I'm so sorry. God can talk to us, and that doesn't mean that we're mentally ill. In fact, it probably means that we're the ones in our right mind. But what kind of relationship is it if God can't even get a word in edgewise? This is why the the church, the global church, needs so desperately to learn how to pray, both individually and corporately, understanding that, yes, prayer includes making our petitions known, thanks be to God, but then having done so, we must learn how to stop and listen to what God is saying. Can I get anybody to agree with me this morning? And here's what concerns me about churches that will not pray. And I think there's plenty of evidence out there to verify what I'm saying. Churches that don't pray 
will plagiarize. It's not unusual to be at a pastor's conference and hear someone say, Oh, what is God saying to the church? Not a bad question. But the truth of the matter is this. God is saying 10,000 things to the church. What we've got to be sensitive to here is what is God saying uniquely to Bethesda Church? Because the temptation is always there to take a look at this place and at that place and, and some places having this success and that success, it's wonderful, and say, you know, and hey, discussion happens. They're being really successful, so we need to be doing that also. Hey, Pastor Josh, Pastor Michael, Pastor Brent, have you seen what so-and-so church is doing? How come we're not doing that at Bethesda? Well, those things may all be fine. They may be fine. But the question that we must always be asking, but what is God saying distinctly to Bethesda? Frankly, I have to be honest with you, I don't care if everyone else is doing it. That's not good enough for me. I need to know if whatever it is, is something the Lord wants us to do. When we don't pray, we will plagiarize. And let's go check out what's happening in in Atlanta. What about that church we hear about in California? Have we seen what's happening at that place in, in Florida? Hey, hey, you know it would be a lot closer if we just drove to Houston, see what's happening in, in Houston. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Let me talk to you. Let me tell you what you need to do at this church at 4700 North Beach. Is anybody with me today? And if it's not the same as Atlanta or California or Florida or Houston, okay. Okay, that's fine. Bethesda, if you inquire of the Lord, he will answer. I got to thinking about this. My dear old dad pastored all my life. You know, pastors have a tendency to have their favorite chorus that they sing all the time. I'm sure you know what mine are. My dad had a favorite chorus. It was this. Becky will remember this. Hallelujah, he's an answering God. Hallelujah. He's an answering God. Simple little four-line chorus. I prayed in Jesus' name, and then the answer came. I can see him right now. Hallelujah. He's an answering God. It was true in 1965. It was true in 1975. And it's true in 2018. We serve a God who hears and answers prayer. Somebody say hallelujah to that today. And here's the good news we hear from psalmist, Psalm 32. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. You know what that makes clear to us today? For those of you who are always saying the heavens are brass, I'm not hearing God desires to answer us and to guide us even more than we want to listen. He desires to talk to us even more than we want to listen. And so I have to simply ask that question that has been asked of me so many times. What is the Lord saying to you this morning? What's the Lord saying? Have you inquired of the Lord? What are you hearing from heaven? But for some of us, This is our problem, that he wants to say to us that what he wants to say to us is something we don't want to do or something we don't want to hear. 
Because we've already decided our own agenda. We've got our plan. We've already determined our approach. Some of you will remember my dear friend Tim Delina, who's spoken here a couple of times. <clears throat> he tells this incredible, incredible story. If those of you who remember him at all will know that over 30 years ago, God called him to plant a church in downtown Detroit, Michigan. You would have to know it was God. I'll leave that alone. Okay. Well, he got to Detroit, and he bought this XXX movie theater, which they were, they were renovating, and every other place around him was every bad place that you would, every place of business you would not want anyone to be near. He had all his workers there working on the building, and the first person to walk in while they were renovating was a transvestite in a dress, high heels, wig, plucked eyebrows. The person walked in and said, I heard this is a church. Tim said, yes, it is. The person said, well, I'm here to get saved. And Tim thought, oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. Our first convert has just walked in. And while Tim is speaking to the man in a dress, and as he's sharing the gospel with him, Tim tells me, he says, that in his own mind he's thinking, dude, you're going to get saved, and when you do, that dress is going away. But remember, church, when you talk to God, you've got to let him talk back. Which sometimes means taking your opinion and setting it on the side. Selah. It's simply polite to speak and pause and then let the other person respond. And the Spirit of God spoke to Tim right then and there, and he said, don't tell him that that dress has got to go when he gets saved. Don't tell him. And God spoke to Tim and he said, if I brought him here, If I got him to walk in the doors of your building, I can tell him what he needs to do next. You don't have to impose your thoughts on him. Tim says inside, he said, I was just churning because I had my own idea, my own plan, my own what, what needed to happen. So Tim found himself in the situation. He says, I, I knew what God was saying. I just didn't like what God was saying. Has anybody ever been there before? I knew what God was I just didn't like it. When you allow him to speak to you, you do run the risk of him saying something that you don't necessarily like or don't necessarily want to do. So Tim shares the gospel. The guy receives it like a sponge. Tim asks him, What's your name? The guy says, Coco. Tim is already thinking how this is going to play out when the guy comes to church that night and makes it known that he got saved. So Tim's thinking, okay, how do we manage this? And he decided, Tim said, he said, I decided I was going to help God a little bit with this situation because I don't really like what God was saying and I, I think he's going to need my help in this. So before God can even respond to Tim's question of what do you want me to do, Tim uh, would say, he's, I was already headed out for the, to get the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Just like the Israelites did in this chapter. So Coco gets saved. Tim knows exactly what God told him not 
to tell him. So Tim says, okay, um, come to the prayer meeting tonight. I'll pick you up at your apartment, and I'll get you to church. And all day long, Tim is thinking of excuses on how to get around what God has said. Tim listened, um, but didn't, didn't like it. So Tim pulls up to Coco's apartment, who just got saved. He honks the horn. Beep, beep. Suddenly, the door opens. Coming out the door and then down the steps to the street, this man walks down the steps in jeans, a sweater. His face is washed. The wig is gone. He's got sneakers on his feet. And Tim was just in shock. I shouldn't tell you this part, but I'm going to. And he says, he got in the car, and Tim said, I couldn't help myself. I looked at him, I said, Coco, you're beautiful. (laughs) And the guy looked at him and said, don't call me Coco. My name is Edward, and I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Only God can do that. Church, let God speak. It's not near as dramatic, but a few weeks back, I was scheduled to have lunch with a gentleman. And all the way to the restaurant, I rehearsed in my mind my agenda. I had one, you can be sure. I was more than confident what items needed attention and how I was going to help him realign. I get out of my car, and while walking to the restaurant door, I said, Lord, you know what all I need to say to this gentleman. Please give me the grace and help to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. And for the next 20 seconds, I had to stop walking because I experienced the loudest, most awkward silence that I've ever heard in my life. It was deafening. It was, I, it, I thought, this is weird. This is just weird. I greeted him at the table, shook his hand, and right as I sat down, as clearly as I could hear something from one of you, I heard the Lord say, throw your agenda away. You have no agenda here today. Your job is to just listen to him. Was it an audible voice? No, it wasn't, but it might as well have been. It was just as clear. Well, as it turned out, the man needed to unload his burdened heart in a completely different direction than I would have gone with my agenda. And by the end of the meal, my agenda, if I'm honest with you, seemed rather foolish to me. When I left the restaurant, all I could say is, God, thank you for keeping me from making an utter fool of myself. If I had gone in with my agenda, I would have done that. Church, let God speak to you. He knows what he's doing. Put your agenda on pause and let God speak. Why did we lose this battle? And genius says, get the ark. And church, never forget, we're our own worst counselor. You know that, right? You are your worst counselor. You need wisdom? Don't look to you. I don't care how smart you are. You are your own worst counselor. When Esau lost the birthright and then lost the prayer of blessing and with Jacob in Genesis 27, we have the perfect example of how someone counsels himself right after loss. Genesis 27, 41. 
From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. Esau's feeling the emotional sting of loss, not only the birthright, but also the, the prayer of blessing. And so here we see his decision right after his circumstance of, of loss. And we see him being his own counselor. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's his counsel to himself. Even the Apostle Paul from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I can't even believe myself. I can't trust myself. 1 Corinthians 4, he says, my conscience is clear. Meaning, I, I think I've got good perspective on this. I, I think I see the whole thing. But that doesn't prove that I'm right. Just because I don't know of anything wrong doesn't mean that my judgment is always correct. It is the Lord himself, Paul says, who will examine me and decide. And the answer the Israelites got when they counseled themselves was this. They came up with 30,000 dead. That's exactly what happened. So the question of the morning really comes down to this. Do you really want to know what God has to say about your circumstance, about your life? And are you really willing to listen? Because if so, there has to be a pause and let him speak. Sometimes I wonder if, if we don't want to inquire of the Lord because we think we already know what he's going to say. We've already determined by he said this to so-and-so and this to so-and-so. We, we think he's already, we already know. And when we think we already know what he's going to say, then we tend to not stop and pause and allow him to speak to us. And you know what? I think for the growing believer, this is going to challenge some of us in the room. For the growing believer, you need to have a predetermined decision of obedience before you even ask. You need to decide ahead of time. In fact, it's the first thing you need to do. Before you even ask of the Lord, you need to decide, Lord, when you speak, I will obey. You need to have it already scripted in your heart. I will obey no matter what you say, whatever you ask me to do, and let it go. Here's the problem. It seems like this is our thinking goes like this. God speaks or gives direction, and then we ask him to explain it, and then we decide if we're going to obey it or not. Now, we may not want to say that out loud or admit it to everybody else, but isn't that true? God speaks and he gives direction. And then we say, Lord, why? And let me see the end from the beginning. And how are we going to get there? And how is this going to happen? We ask him to explain it. But what we're really doing is we want him to explain it so that then we can decide if we're going to obey it or not. Can I just say that is not the kingdom of God? In fact, it's actually reversed. It goes like this in the kingdom. You start with... I will obey no matter what he says. And then God gives direction. And then he explains it, maybe. You don't like that, do you? We want it, he speaks, we, he asks him to explain it, and then we decide if we're going to obey or not. And that's not the kingdom of God, dear one. The kingdom of God says, number one, Whatever is going to come from heaven, I will obey it. Number two, God gives direction. Number three, maybe, maybe not, maybe. 
because he's not obligated to, he'll explain it. Maybe. And so God, <clears throat> so, so God, I want to go in the ministry. You want me to go where? Uh, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. When our daughter first started working for a certain company four or five years ago, she was excited in the first place that she was told, it was all lined up, was that she was going to go to Phoenix, Arizona. We all thought, woohoo, we like Phoenix. There's some fun things to do there. And, and we, Becky and I can go visit. And that will be great. So there was great rejoicing in the Smith household. And about two or three days before uh, she was to actually go, <clears throat> she gets a phone call and said, you know what, we've had a, a, bit, of cha- a bit of change in our thinking and our plan and uh, we think instead of Phoenix, Arizona, we're going to send you to Coffeeville, Kansas. Does anybody see a difference between Phoenix? They're not the same thing. <clears throat> so, you know, I was very proud of her. She, she moped and, and uh, mourned for about a day. And then she got it together and determined, I still want to do this. And we get her up there and get her settled. It didn't help when she discovered that the closest Starbucks was 100 miles away. That didn't help. Didn't help when she discovered there was nothing there that she'd had in Dallas-Fort Worth. But nonetheless, it was what it was. So for a few weeks, you know, we'd call her and lonely. There's nothing to do here. Nothing to do. We hear that. We hear that. And then I began to know. I said to Becky one day, I said, have you noticed she's not complaining anymore? She, did, she seems to talk about how nice it is up there and things she's found to do and a little cafe and a little this. Well, guess what? The Lord had directed the steps of a young man named Christopher Cooper to Coffeeville, Kansas, <laughs> who she would not have met if she had gone to Phoenix. And today he is her very fine husband. And that's the way that works. When God speaks, you need to listen. We need obedience before we even hear a voice from heaven and before we get any direction from him. And you know what? Can I just say that this this morning? I think some of us literally right now in this service need to make that determination as you're hearing what I'm saying. I don't think you've done it out of ill will or out of anything wrong. It's just a natural form of life. And maybe exposing you to it this morning, you want to respond in your heart and say, God, Really, I'm going to decide, I'm going to obey you, whatever it is, before you give me direction, before I even ask you about this. Whatever it is that you have, I'm going to obey you. If that's true, do that in your heart right now. God, whatever you say, I will do. Charles Stanley tells the story of going to his 85-year-old grandfather who told him this. He says, Charles, if God tells you to run through a brick wall, then son, start running. And believe that by the time you get there, God will have a hole in that wall the size of your head and body. Kind of reminds me of the Roadrunner cartoons used to watch. And that is true. It's obedience first and saying, God, I trust you with whatever you're going to do. Be obedient to God and leave the consequences up to him. I think the most... uh, The most direction we need in our lives can be found in at least four things. Prayer, the Word, 
church, and godly people. You say them again. Prayer, the word, church, and godly people. The wisdom and direction of God is not as hidden as some of us think. I see people, I've come into people in the church all my life who've been praying for the same will of God for 40 years. It's like it has been hidden from them. Why do we sometimes have a hard time knowing what God wants us to do? Why is it at times it seems like the will of God is a treasure hunt? Is this the one I'm supposed to marry? Is this the one I'm I watched him raise his hand and he didn't have a ring on. Maybe that's Jesus talking to me, telling me that he's available. Finding the truth is easier than we sometimes think. But you know what's hard? What's hard is trying to find the answer that we want to hear. That's what you're saying is hard when you say that. I can't discover the will of God. No, it's not that hard. What you're really saying is, I can't discover hearing God say what I want Him to say. And unfortunately, that's most often what we search after rather than the true will of God. Because when you are in church, when you're in prayer, when you're in the Word, and when you're around godly people, you will know what you are supposed to do. One more thing. Pastor Brent, come on. No moving around as I finish this because this is very personal. Go one chapter before 1 Samuel chapter 3. Because some people say, so how do I know the voice of God? How do I know? Can I just say this? If you don't read the Bible, then you won't know the voice of God ever. What does the voice of God sound like? He sounds just like this. It's exactly what he sounds like. Dear friend, if this is divorced from your life, then so will be the, the voice of God. If you have removed yourself from this, you have removed yourself from the voice of God. This is where we know God actually speaks. When someone comes to you with a thus saith the Lord, if it doesn't sound like this, drop it like a hot potato. This is the guide for us. The third chapter of 1 Samuel, it's the story of Samuel not only dedicated, but now he's in the house of God. His leader, his pastor, is Eli, the priest, who has two corrupt sons that we read earlier. They die in the chapter we read. God is about to raise up this young man, Samuel, and he's teaching him to hear the voice of God, which I find interesting and I think is an admonition to our young parents here today. Have you thought about teaching your child how to hear the voice of God? One night while he's in bed, God speaks to Samuel and he calls to him. Chapter 3, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel gets up. Pastor Eli, did you call me? No, buddy. I was, no, I was sleeping, buddy. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. But he hears it again. Samuel. Samuel. Samuel goes running back to Eli, his pastor. Sir, did you, didn't you call me? No, I didn't. Go back to bed. And there's probably a little quit bugging me in there somewhere. What well, happened a third time? And when it did, the Bible says it was Eli who then recognized that God was speaking to the young man. That God was developing the young prophet to hear the voice of God. And when Samuel comes back to Eli, the third time, Eli says, Young man, God is talking to you. So the next time he speaks, 
Here's what you should say. Here am I. Your servant is listening. And here's the part that I find interesting. And I say this to you cautiously. And I say it to you, church, assuming you have some spiritual authority in your life, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, a pastor, one of our folks on staff. Here's what I see in this. How do you know the voice of God? Sounds a lot like this. How do you know the voice of God? When Samuel heard the voice of God, it sounded just like his pastor. It sounded just like Eli. Can I tell you that the voice of God I've heard for decades has a Welsh accent. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Every time Pastor Des stood in this pulpit, many of the very questions I was asking in the quiet of my own heart, nobody knew. They were answered. Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. It didn't matter. The point is this, church. God is wanting to speak to you. Give him the opportunity to speak by just becoming a good listener. He wants to speak. The question is, are you listening?